Hello and welcome to another series of Imagining Freedom, which focuses on our rights and freedoms. I haven't made a podcast for a long time because, just because of general chaos in my life, basically. And I'd like to start this new series by quoting a few lines of poetry from William Butler Yeats. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Things are falling apart. Everything seems to be going, moving more slowly at the moment. I moved into a new flat a couple of weeks ago and I've been told that I won't be able to get broadband connected till the end of the month. Presumably because so many people are off with COVID or because they've had a positive result from a dodgy PCR test or because they've had a sniffle and they've been told to self-isolate. Loads of things are shut. The libraries are closed. The charity shops are closed. Um, It's difficult to get a dentist appointment. Things like this might seem like first world problems, middle class problems, but there are much worse problems waiting in the wings. The number of for sale signs I see when I go to the centre of town, the number of businesses that are having to close or that are just teetering on the edge. Unemployment's already rising and it's going to get a lot worse. The economy is on a knife edge. And this is something that could so easily be avoided. We could be living in paradise, really. It's all sort of self-created. Mankind is creating these problems because of mass hysteria, in my opinion. This is not meant to be a moan. Last year, for me, was quite a good year in many ways. I managed to achieve some things, but as I say, this is not a personal moan. I know that there were people, there's many people who had a much worse time than I did. People who did have COVID. I mean, I've never said that I didn't think it existed. I know people who had, who had it very badly and who were very scared and really suffered a lot for a couple of weeks. I know people who had illnesses like cancer. One of my neighbours has cancer and he had his first session of chemo and then it was cancelled because of the lockdown. And he, It must have been a nightmare for him and his wife. People who were self-isolating in horrendous conditions. I was lucky enough to be in a lovely flat. I mean, yeah, my, my life was in chaos because in 2019, I'd been caring for my elderly mother who died at the end of 2019. Nothing to do with COVID. She had a stroke. She was 89 years old. I then started the process of selling my flat. So I was emptying my flat, putting everything into storage. And then when lockdown came, all my possessions were in storage. And I was stuck in inverted commas in my mum's lovely West End flat with a lovely garden, lovely neighbours. So really, I had nothing to worry about apart from the fact that we seem to be moving into this kind of police state. So personally speaking, I'm certainly not moaning. I'm not saying poor me. But I just look at what's happening in the world and really, really worry. I worry about what's going to happen to my country. I think there are signs that something potentially extremely sinister is taking place. And as an example, I saw an article that was shared on social media yesterday, which absolutely horrified me, in The Guardian, saying that do not resuscitate orders have been given again because apparently this happened during the first lockdown, 
These do not resuscitate orders have been given to people who have learning difficulties. I can't imagine why this is happening. Why should the fact that someone maybe has Down syndrome or whatever, why should that mean that they have a DNR order when they get COVID? It just doesn't make sense. And the more you look into it, the more you think about it, the more sinister it gets. I mean, this really does hark back to 1930s Germany, Nazi Germany. I think there have been many similarities with what happened in Nazi Germany. Yeah, maybe we haven't had a wee man with a moustache yelling and being and mesmerising crowds and yelling out anti-Semitic slogans. But there are, there are many other horrible similarities, in my opinion. I always thought it was strange that Hitler was accredited with bringing about Germany's economic miracle in the 1930s. Germany going from this inflation-ridden disaster with things really falling apart, people, huge amount of unemployment, people being killed on the streets, you know, the Freikorps um, battling with communists. And that from that chaos came this kind of horrible kind of order and an economic miracle. Germany started becoming this economic powerhouse, which was able to arm itself to become one of the great powers in, of Europe. And all this was, is accredited to this man who had actually been living in DOS houses as a, as a field artist for years before the war. And that was always a big question in my mind. And then when the pictures emerged a few years ago of the Queen doing a Nazi salute, and of course I'm not suggesting that the Queen has been a Nazi. She was only seven years old when that picture was taken, and a seven-year-old doesn't understand the implications of these kind of things. But who took the picture... There's clear indications that there was Nazi feeling within her family. Certainly her uncle, Edward VIII, was a very strong supporter of Hitler. But this picture just intrigued me and I really wanted to know more about what was going on. And also, there was a lot in the newspapers about it, a lot of articles and about really the interest in the Nazis around that time. And I, I bought this book by Karina Erbach called Go-Betweens for Hitler, which was talking about the aristocratic people who acted as, as kind of diplomats during the war on the side of the Nazis. And there's definitely, there's definitely been a lot of evidence that, you know, some percentage of Europe's ruling families were very pro-Nazi, and certainly that happened in the UK. It doesn't mean that all the aristocrats were pro-Nazi. It was a percentage, and probably a relatively small percentage, but a significant percentage. Why did this happen? I think that the Bolshevik Revolution, which was in, in 1918, and then the murder of the Romanovs, the ruling family in Russia, caused shockwaves through the, the world, but obviously throughout, particularly throughout the ruling families of Europe. And they, many of them were inter, interrelated. The Russian king, Nicholas II, he was the, I think he, he was related to King George V. But if King George V refused him asylum when they tried to, when they wrote and asked if they could stay in Britain, he refused them asylum because he was so worried that their presence in Britain might spark revolution there because they had a reputation of being autocratic rulers. 
But then when they were actually slaughtered, obviously people were horrified. And then there were other revolutions in Europe. There was the revolution in Hungary, which was also communist. And many of this was blamed on the Jews, quite wrongly, obviously. There was a lot of anti-Semitism around anyway. I mean, you can see that when you just, you just have to read some of the old novels written before the war to see just this casual anti-Semitism. And then there was the revolution in Italy by Mussolini. And Mussolini started out as a socialist, but then he got involved in, with fascism. He developed fascism. And the big difference with his revolution was that the ruling classes retained their positions and the industrialists retained their businesses. And I think that this was noted. And that's why there was such a big support of fascism by the ruling classes, because they thought that revolutions were happening. And if they were going to happen, they wanted them to be fa uh, fascist revolutions rather than communist ones. So Karina Erbach's book, Go Betweens for Hitler, shows how the Nazis were actually bankrolled by, in particular, the Duke of Coburg, who was, I think he was a nephew of Queen Victoria, and he moved from England to Germany to uh, manage an estate there. He bankrolled some of the Freikorps Fry groups because they were looking for groups that could take power in Germany. But eventually they settled on the Nazis. And when Hitler, Hitler had this failed putsch and they had to go to prison, their armaments were, were stored in a castle, apparently, one of these ruling families' castles. So there was a lot of support for the Nazis. And I think in doing so, I would imagine that they had no idea of the kind of horrific genocide that was going to happen. But I think that they unwittingly created a monster. So that's the way I see things anyway. Obviously, we don't have the exact same circumstances here, but I think that we've got the building blocks of that happening at the moment. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming? Yeats's poem seems horribly prophetic. He wrote that poem in 1919. So it was just after the First World War had ended and the Bolshevik Revolution would have taken place the year before. So maybe it seemed obvious that this was happening. When I heard this poem, it was last year, and I just read the first few lines, and those two lines turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer, they just kept going round and round in my mind. I couldn't really work out why they were haunting me so much. I knew that the poem had been written just after the First World War, so I kept thinking, I kept having this picture of all the horrible marshy battlefields and people kind of sinking and dying in those battlefields and this kind of spinning round. But as time went on, I started seeing it more as the way that the wheel of life changes, the wheel of fortune, you could say, um, turns round and we keep repeating this history again and again. And then when it says the falcon cannot hear the falconer, it's almost as if we need to, to hear, we need to listen to what's being, what the lesson is. We need to be aware of what history is teaching us. 
or it'll just keep going round and round and round. That's what it seems to say to me. Things fall apart. The centre cannot hold. It seems to be saying that at times when everything seems to be falling apart, that chaos is reigning, people start panicking and they start looking around for a leader, a saviour. The poem says, surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming? Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs, while all about it reel shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. This is a poem about people crying out for a strong leader, a saviour to see them through the latest crisis. But instead of having this wonderful saviour, they get this beast with a lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, and it turns into horror. And that is exactly what happened. I mean, in Russia, many people still revere Lenin, but after Lenin came Stalin. Then in Italy, they had Mussolini. In Spain, they had Franco. Millions of people were slaughtered by these tyrants. And then in Germany, they had Hitler. It's such a prophetic poem. It's so sinister and horrific. And it's a warning. It's a warning that if we put all our faith in a strong leader, we might actually regret it. Instead, we need to look to ourselves and stop relying on someone outside us to try and sort our lives out for us. We currently have a situation where unelected people are taking it upon themselves to direct the course of our lives. And this is happening throughout the world. I find this very scary. And it's people who have been acting in the background, more or less. So last year, we suddenly had the situation where this man, Klaus Schwab, who had been a prominent leader before, but in the background, you know, on the business pages of the newspapers, and we suddenly had this man taking the centre stage and actually saying with a big smile on his face what we would be doing in the next few years, directing us from his organisation, the World Economic Forum, where did this organisation come from? When all this started to happen, when Klaus Schwab suddenly was centre stage, I, like probably millions of other people, thought, who is this man? So I looked to Wikipedia, like probably millions of people did. And I found it a very disjointed description because it just said that this man had been born in Germany, he was the son of an industrialist and... He'd gone to university and got a degree and then he'd got another degree. He seems to have done pretty well. I think he became an engineer, wrote a few books. 
And at the age of 33, he created this organisation called the European Management Forum, which then became the World Economic Forum, which happens to be one of the organisations that's almost leading the world. How did that happen? How did he become... How did he get that success, that massive success to become a world leader without ever having been elected for his organisation to have suddenly become so massively influential in the world? I knew when I read that. I kept reading it over and over again because I knew that there was something missing here. And I searched, I did an online search. I mean, all the libraries were closed, so I didn't have any alternative. And I had to search back quite a bit before I found an article which mentioned the Bilderberg Group and said that Klaus Schwab had actually been on the Bilderberg Steering Committee. And although it was quite a well-sourced article, it didn't source that particular piece of information, so I had to do more research. And I found this page from BilderbergMeetings.org, which had been archived. So it it had been retrieved from archive.org, which means that it had been deleted. And it was a list of all the Bilderberg, the members of the Bilderberg Steering Group, which had been public, but had since been deleted. And that's raised a big question in my mind. I thought, why are they deleting these pages? I got the impression that Mr. Schwab's biography, his online profile, had been tidied up quite a bit. So he was on the steering group of the Bilderberg quite um, several times. On the Wikipedia page, it also shows a list of these accolades that he's been given so there's clearly been a lot going on behind the scenes the Bilderberg group is often dismissed as a kind of big conspiracy theory that it's I first heard of it in the early 2000s and I heard through um, people like Alex Jones I've never followed Alex Jones but I think he was on a TV program with John Ronson at one point and I can't remember whether it was on that program or somewhere else but that's around the time that I heard about it and there were claims being made that it was actually, it was very powerful and that the people on the gr- that went to the Bilderberg group had a lot of influence over our so-called democratic leaders. And this was all seen as a big conspiracy theory that we were just making too much of it and this was just a conference where people discussed world affairs and why should we worry about it, etc. Well... Now we're seeing why we need to worry about it. Now we're seeing in plain sight how this organisation has been managing things from the shadows, really, and is now coming out and laying down the law for people all over the world. When I was doing all this research into the background of Klaus Schwab, I stumbled across a very interesting academic paper published by the University of Freiburg by Alexander Zielinski, and it's called, quite a convoluted title, as, as academic papers often are, the Bilderberg Conferences as Transnational Informal Governance Networks. It's, it's a really interesting paper. It really looks at the elitism within the Bilderberg group. It looks at the people and the families who appear on its um, membership lists again and again, this is a group which is very culturally homogeneous and until a few years ago it seems to have been quite male-dominated as well. In fact, it probably still is. And it seems to represent very strongly the, the ruling families and the industrialists of Europe and the, the United States. 
it almost seems to me as if it's a way that these families are trying to hold on to their power, hold on to that European colonialism that we had in the Victorian times. And I get the impression that the author of this paper also uh, sees th things in this way. He says that in his paper, he's proposed to call this a transnational informal governance network, but it could also be labelled a transnational power elite. And he goes on to look at the makeup of the Bilderberg group or the people who are very powerful within it. And he shows how the conferences link European royal dynasties and powerful elites with industrial and financial leaders and military bodies like NATO. And that the network is very strongly Anglo-Saxon in character and primarily male-dominated. He said that U the USA is followed by the UK as by far the most dominant participant in the group, and then by France, with the Netherlands in sixth place. But the Netherlands is significantly influential in the inner circle, with Pin Prince Bernhardt, who was one of the founders of the Bilderberg Conferences, and the Dutch royal family. He also describes it as an old boys network, with women only participating in, in later years and in relatively low numbers. And many of the women who did participate were members of represented families. He says that non-white participation was even lower. And I have personally noticed this when I've watched the videos of people who visited the, the Bilderberg conferences, the wonderful journalists who've covered it on the ground, often being, you know, really manhandled by the police and told to to move out of the way. Um, people like Luke Krodowski and Dan, Dan Dix. And um, there was one woman who, I can't remember her name, but she has attended the Bilderberg conferences many times and she takes a, a camera with a very, very powerful lens. And I remember watching a film from this a few years ago and just noticing that there were very few non-white faces among the people who, they'd all come out onto the terrace for drinks between seminars or something. And I recognised a few people, a few British political leaders. I noticed that there were very few non-white faces. And I just got the impression then that these are the people who are influencing things in the background, while at the same time calling for diversity for everyone else. And diversity to, to me is a very good thing, but I felt that along over the years I've felt that we're moving to a situation where we've got a small homogeneous elite directing the masses and the masses are all equal and we're equal in the way, in a kind of equal slavery. That's what we seem to be moving towards. And I've seen this happening for so long that when I, before I started this podcast, I was thinking about it before the COVID thing even started and I was going to call it Welcome to the Plantation because having ancestors, quite, quite close ancestors who were slaves, my great-grandfather was the son of two freed slaves in the Caribbean. I started to recognise things that seemed to be reminiscent of slavery. I'll probably go into that in more detail in, a, in another podcast. But, yeah, the fact that this group who have these kind of very secretive conferences, the, the, mass, the vast proportion of them seem to be white, was not lost on me. And this is reflected in this paper. The author of this paper, Zielinski, 
And the paper was written in 2018. So things have moved on a little bit since then. But at the time, he said that the only non-white per person in the inner circle in the Bilderberg group was Vernon Jordan Jr., a former activist for racial eman emancipation in the, in the United States. Since then, Charlie Skelton wrote an article in The Independent, I think that was last year, where he pointed to a black woman called Melody Hobson, who's the wife of George Lucas, the filmmaker. She's described as a high-profile investor and a diversity campaigner. And she was said by Charlie Skelton to be the only black member of the Bilderberg Steering Committee. So presumably, Bert Vernon Jordan Jr. was no longer on the st steering committee by then. So that, again, implies a sort of token black syndrome. The paper, the academic paper, says that only one Japanese person has ever been invited to the Bilderberg Conference, and the Chinese have only been invited since 2004. The author also points out that the steering committee consists of 31 members from 19 countries and that the chairman traditionally stems from an aristocratic European family. He said that nobody from Latin America was ever invited to a Bilderberg conference and that Jose, Jose Angel Gurria from Mexico, who served as secretary general of the OECD since 2006 was the first person in that particular office not to have been invited to any Bilderberg conferences so far. And the author also points out the almost complete absence of participants from Eastern Europe at Bilderberg meetings. He suggested that there might be other informal meeting points from the, for the transatlantic elite where Eastern Europeans might be invited. But he then added, it is possible that the absence of elite members from Eastern, Europe, Eastern European countries reflects the geopolitical power relations and the almost total dominance of Western Europe over Eastern Europe economically, politically and militarily. This all seems to typify the way these unelected groups that just take power over us and try and direct the way we live our lives are completely hypocritical. When you look at the World Economic Forum, it's constantly lecturing us about the dangers of uh, climate change. And yet it does so in a way that only focuses on things that would restrict our lives, the lives of ordinary people. So concrete, for example, this is just one example. Concrete ha has one of the highest embodied CO2 rates of any of all building materials. And they don't slap regulations on concre concrete. We see concrete houses being and concrete buildings being put up all over the place. Then when it comes to our cars, they are subject to massive regulation. It just seems to be things that affect ordinary people and that restrict us. And the same goes for diversity. I think diversity is a great thing. I think equality of opportunity is essential, as long as it's not impacting our freedom of speech, for example. But when you see these groups that are preaching to us about all of these things, they don't represent diversity, to my mind. The shadowy groups, the unelected groups like the, the Bilderberg group, they seem to represent a very narrow elite of very wealthy people from a, a fairly homogeneous background. It seems to me that they want diversity for the masses, equal opportunity for everyone except for themselves. We are all meant to be equal slaves, all dependent on UBI universal basic income, which we'll only get if our immunity passports are up to date, as long as we've had our injections. Who's in charge of this group? 
I often see this question asked in the independent media. Who is pulling Bill Gates' strings? Who is his boss? I think I can answer that question. You only have to look in the mirror to see who is in charge of these people. When we stop looking to these people and to the so-called leaders that they influence for solutions to our day-to-day problems, that is when they lose their power. We have to learn to look after ourselves to stop constantly calling on leaders to come to our aid. Otherwise, we're just going to keep on conjuring up rough beasts. There are so many ways of doing this. And the political process is just a very small part of this, in my opinion. The political process is used to divide and rule. People agonise over the nitty-gritty of party politics. But they'll blindly look the other way when their favourite leader starts to bomb innocent people. They turn away from it. They don't want to know. I used to be like that myself. As long as we're doing this, then we are part of the problem. We are cheering on our own enslavement. As I say, I used to do this myself. And this was back in the days of Bill Clinton. I remember hearing that, you know, we'd had the the first Iraq war with Daddy Bush, George Bush, the, the father George Bush. And then Bill Clinton came in and, you know, the sort of liberal people all thought things were going to get better. And then I remember hearing on, I think it was the World Service, that there'd been a horrible bombing in Iraq. And I I was really depressed to hear about this. It wasn't reported on the, the news headlines. It was in the middle of the night. I think I had insomnia. I put the radio on. It was the World Service. And I just kind of tried my best to overlook it. I thought, well, there must have been some reason for it. I remember mentioning it to a friend and she kind of looked, said, yeah, these things do still happen. And we just kind of had pained looks or something, shrugged our shoulders, basically. Because I really wanted to believe that Bill Clinton was the man who was going to save us from all of this. He wasn't even my president, you know. This is the president of the United States. It just shows you how false this this whole game of politics is and I think when Tony Blair came along that's when I finally thought enough is enough but really if we tolerate these kind of things we are part of the problem that's why I vote none now in Westminster elections because I think the Westminster political system is totally corrupt and if you vote none if you do it in the proper structured way then that counts as a protest vote I do think that the, the Scottish a political system, the voting system, is more fair. It's proportional representation in Scotland for the Scottish Parliament. And I think that that's a, a fairer system. So I vote, usually vote in Scottish elections, and I usually vote for independence. I'm sick of party politics. Because with party politics, you do get compromises on this kind of issue. And by the way, I mean independent people, not independence, as in Scottish independence, that's a different issue altogether. Be the change you want to see in the world. It is a cliché, but it's a very good cliché. The solution to all of this lies within our own hearts. And that's what I want to talk about in the next podcast. Thanks for listening.